Well, it is good to be standing back in this pulpit. And it is good to say to you, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Back to the book of Romans, and we are just at this mountain peak in the book of Romans, this glorious mountaintop of theological truth. We are going to be picking up where we left off when we were last in Romans at the very beginning of the summer. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, let's read together now in Romans chapter 8, hear the word of the Lord. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, inerrant, supernatural word. Thank you for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, your people. That through your word, by your spirit, we know our God. We hear our God's voice. Our very lives are transformed, brought first from the kingdom of darkness into light, and then evermore transformed by your Spirit, working through your word into the image of Christ, our Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in and among us this morning. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word. The words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are at the mountaintop here in Romans chapter 8. This passage that we're looking at this morning, it starts with what may be the most well-known verse in all of the New Testament. This is such an incredible passage, a life-giving, hope-inspiring passage. It's a, it's a truth that should be the lens that, that we see all of our lives through, all of the experiences that we have, all of our joys, all of our heartaches, our whole lives and everything that happens in them, we should, we should see through the lens of this glorious passage. And yet the truth that is taught so clearly in this passage has produced more controversy between believers than perhaps any other single text in the New Testament. The theological truth that this passage so clearly reveals is one of the most volatile and explosive topics in all of Christianity, so much so that it's territory that many pastors and churches will simply not go, will not address, will not talk about. It's, it's controversial topics like the one that this passage teaches, which are the reasons why so many pastors refuse to preach verse by verse through the Bible, lest they might have to actually deal with them in context and talk about what they are actually saying. So why is this glorious passage so controversial? How can something this glorious be so controversial? Well, it's because this passage is a clear teaching on what is called the doctrine of election. And you simply don't say words like predestination or election unless you want to face controversy and perhaps angry mobs. My car is literally full of gas and running right outside my office door so that I can hop in and go in case the pitchforks come out. 
Those words, maybe you even heard it. The doctrine of election and something, and you went, oh, predestination. Oh, I don't like those words. Well, friends, they're Bible words, so we ought to love them, actually. The, the, the truth is this doctrine is at the heart of much controversy and division, especially in America, where our own autonomy, our own freedom, our own right to make all of our own decisions, do whatever we want to do, have no one else be in charge of that, is something we hold sacred. It is one of our most cherished idols, our freedom. And so I am well aware that what we are doing this morning as we resume our study of the book of Romans is diving headfirst into controversial waters, and I'm not only willing to do that, I'm delighted to do it. I'm happy to do it. Why would I be happy to address a controversial topic this morning? I'll tell you why. Because God's word is true. It's not just true, it's beautiful. It's perfect. It's lovely. And so I'm willing to risk offending. Oscar Wilde once said, the definition of a gentleman is someone who doesn't offend someone accidentally. So this morning, I hope not to offend accidentally, but I'm happy to offend in order to faithfully proclaim the word of God. It's not my truth. It's his truth. It's not mine to tamper with. It's not mine to adjust. It's not yours either. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so I am bound, my conscience is bound to proclaim the truth of this passage clearly and boldly and humbly and leave the rest up to the Lord whose word this is. And the truth is, the water's only going to get deeper when we get to chapter 9. Some of the questions you're going to have today are going to be addressed there. But I can assure you, if you break into a sweat at some point this morning over Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, you're going to have uh, a lot of feelings when we get to chapter 9. So what, what many people do is they dance around the clear meaning of this passage that we're looking at this morning, and then they ignore chapter 9 altogether. And we're not going to be doing that. But, but if you just look ahead to Romans chapter 9, I just want to give you a hint of what's to come. Look, look at verse 11 in Romans chapter 9. Rebecca is about to have twins, and Paul writes this in verse 11. Though they were not born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the, young, the older will serve the younger. Look at verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Catch that language there? Before they were born, before they had done anything, they had done nothing good, they had done nothing bad, God says, I love Jacob and I hate Esau. How does that sit with you? Is God being unjust? Was God being unfair to Esau? Well, Paul anticipates that question. Just look down at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And how does he answer? We've seen that statement from Paul in Romans. It's the strongest statement you can make by no means. God forbid. How dare we even ask a question like that? If that's not enough, look just a little further down to verse 17. Consider the implication of verses 17 and 18 of chapter 9. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What is Paul saying here? What does the Scripture say here? What does God say here? God raised Pharaoh up for one purpose and one purpose alone. It was to show his power in Pharaoh. And how did God show his power in Pharaoh? Not by the might of the Egyptian empire, by crushing him. That's how God showed his power in him. Literally destroying him. God put him on a pedestal for one reason, and the reason was, I'm going to knock him off of there. In order for that to happen, Pharaoh had to reject God. In order for God to do the thing he purposed in creating Pharaoh, Pharaoh had to reject God. So whose doing was it that Pharaoh didn't believe? Well, certainly part of the responsibility lies with Pharaoh. That's our natural inclination. It's it's Pharaoh's fault that he rejected God, that he didn't believe God. But what I just want to point out here is that's not the only thing going on. In fact, it's not the thing that this passage tells us is going on. This passage is pointing at someone else in Pharaoh's unbelief. It says here it's God's doing. Verse 18 removes any doubt that that's what's being said. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Does your theology have room for a God like that? If not, friend, let me just tell you right up front, your theology didn't come from the Bible because this is the Bible we're reading these statements. If we hear these statements and they scandalize us, then we can be sure that our understanding of God that's so offended by these statements did not come from the scripture that makes these statements. The problem, though, is that every fiber in our body wants to scream out, that's, that's absolutely not fair. That cannot be right. God would never do that. If God did that, I'm not sure how I feel about a God like that. I was teaching a class at the beginning of the summer And Romans was one of the books that we studied, and a young Christian girl who obviously hadn't done a whole lot of Bible reading before had her faith so scandalized by simply reading the book of Romans that she began to question whether she wanted to believe in a God like this anymore or not. And she talked to me about it, and I said, you're understanding the book correctly. Your concerns are correct, and now your decision is, do I think I'm smarter than God is? Am I in the place to judge God? Paul anticipates that reaction, though. That reaction in us that wants to rise up and say, that's not fair. How could a God like this be just? How could a God like this be good and moral? How can this possibly be right? And in verse 20 of chapter 9, Paul says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? In other words, friends, as, as we... Study what our brother Paul writes on this topic under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing perfectly, speaking for God. When these feelings rise up in us, we need to hear these words echoing in our minds and we need to commit to it right at the beginning. Just who do I think I am? What makes me think I can tell God what to do? What makes me think I'm smarter than him. What makes me think I could somehow be morally superior to him? And so, yes, we've got deep theological waters ahead, but friends, there is glory here. There is glory in the deep things of God. There's peace here. 
There's encouragement here. There is hope here. This is the ground. It's the substance of our assurance. And so, no, we are not going to dance around it. Come what may. What I'm asking you to do is wrestle through this with me. Because whatever God says is true. Whatever God says is true. And whatever God's truth is, it is good. It is beautiful. It is right. And everything in us that feels like it's not is a part of our fallenness. It needs to be submitted to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying I'm infallible. I'm saying God's word is. I'm not saying every word that I speak is perfect and true and good. I'm saying every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is perfect and true and good. And so let's let his word tell us who he is. Amen? Amen. Let's look at this astounding promise in verse 28. We won't spend a lot of time on it because we preached the whole sermon on just this one verse already. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What a promise. What an amazing, it's no wonder that this is one of the most beloved verses in all of Scripture. All things work together for good for God's people. In other words, Christian, every single event in your entire life is working in perfect harmony with every other single event in your life. For what goal? For what purpose? What are they working so perfectly together for is to accomplish God's good and perfect purposes both in you and through you. What better promise is there than that when the tire goes flat in the rain? This event is working in perfect harmony with every other event in my life to accomplish God's good purposes in me. Or more than that, when that tragedy occurs that you can't possibly, you can't possibly come up with one good thing in. Oh, to know this truth. To know that this promise is true. The trials and storms of our lives, God is at work, whether we understand it or not, whether we see it or not. Nothing is wasted, nothing is meaningless. All things work for good. And then look at that first word in verse 29 for. In other words, Paul is going to tell us the reason that that's true, the reason that all things work for our good, those who are in the Lord. So whatever Paul's about to say is the reason verse 28 is true. And so if we move on from verse 28 and start trying to do some sort of gymnastics to avoid the clear meaning of these next verses, then verse 28 is going to lose all its power. It's going to lose all of its weight. It's going to lose all of its meaning. In fact, it becomes an empty promise. If we refuse to believe the next word Paul says, verse 28 becomes nothing more than wishful thinking. There's no guarantee that all things really are going to work out for our good. But what verses 29 and 30 do is they provide the, the grounds for verse 28. Why is it true? Why can we trust it? They give to us an unbreakable five-fold chain regarding our salvation, five key truths that link one to another, forging an inseparable, unbreakable chain that secures us eternally as God's people. And so what I want to do this morning is just look at these five words that Paul gives us, these five unbreakable links, and allow Scripture to define them for us. 
Verse 29, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is, in, in order that he might be preeminent. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So look at this first word, foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. Foreknowledge means the believer's salvation has its beginning in the mind and the counsel of the triune Godhead. Now, what some will do with this word, and, and these words that we're looking at, they're clearly in our Bibles. We have to deal with them. Foreknowledge, predestination, words like election. We have to deal with these words. All Christians do because they're Bible words. But what people do is they just try to tinker with the words. They don't look to Scripture to define the words for them. They, they start with a human philosophy that says God must be like this, and then they define that word to fit into their categories. And so people will take this word foreknowledge, and they'll say what it means is God looks ahead of, of, of time. He looks through the corridor of time into the future. He sees who's going to choose them, and then he retroactively elects them based on what he sees they're going to do in their own totally autonomous freedom. In other words, God looks into the future, he sees who will believe, and he says, okay, I'll elect you then, based on that. That's often how this word is treated. It's often how this passage is taught. It is a common way, perhaps the most common way in the evangelical world. Uh, I'm certain that for most of us, it's the way we were taught. There are serious problems with that teaching. One is that God learned something, if that's true. And that's heretical. There are many, many problems. I'm just going to give you two of them. The first problem is it mistakes the origin of salvation. If this belief is true, that God looks through the corridor of time, sees who will choose him, and that's who he elects, then salvation begins in man's faith. God would not have chosen man. Man would only have chosen God. And the problem with that is the Bible. It does not offend our American sensitivities. We like that. The problem is, the Bible, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love God because what? He first loved us. Fallen man cannot reach his hand out to receive the gift of eternal life because there is no power in that hand to reach. God must act first. God must take the initiative. God must move upon the one whom he has chosen, then we can reach out and receive. But we need God to make us alive first. Haven't we seen that in Romans already? Our state, our deadness, our helplessness, our lack of desire. Second problem, though, is related to it. It gravely underestimates the depravity of man. Many in the church, many in the pulpit, for that matter, have lost the understanding of the nature of man's depravity, the radical corruption of our fallen condition. The Bible describes the unbeliever as a slave, as blind, as dead to the things of God. He, he has no source of saving faith within that spiritually dead corpse of his. And so if God is just looking through the corridor of time to see how we're going to respond to the call of the gospel, looking to see who has faith and who doesn't have faith, what is he going to see when he looks at humanity? 
James Montgomery Boyce says the only thing he would see in all of humanity apart from his intervention is unbelief. That's all we've got. If you have forgotten the first three chapters of Romans, I would invite you after the service to go back and read them. In other words, the the only thing God would see if he did, if he was just looking through the corridor of time to learn something about us, which again is a heresy, all he'd see is the rejection of the gospel. All he'd see is the rebellion in our hearts. All he would see is our opposition to his grace. Paul said in chapter 3, verse 10, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul again writes, The natural person, that is the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, they are foolishness to him. He is not able to understand. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 19, The light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, who are these unbelievers who are, who are so spiritually dead that they're totally incapable of receiving the things of God? Who is this category of people? It's all of us. We were all the unbelievers before God saved us. So in other words, without the initiating work of God on behalf of his chosen people, they would never, ever, ever believe the gospel. They would never want to receive the light of Christ because they love the darkness in their death. So God's foreknowledge cannot mean that he looks through the corridor of time and learns something about us and responds accordingly. His foreknowledge then means it's not just that God knows all things, sees the end from the beginning. It's that he ordains in advance. His foreknowledge includes his intention. That's exactly how this word is used throughout Scripture. We want to let the Bible define these words for us. God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. What does God mean? Did he mean that he knew there was a baby in the womb? Well, of course God knows that. God knows that of every baby. But he tells Jeremiah, I knew you. It's It's a unique statement God is making to Jeremiah. God is implying that a relationship with Jeremiah was in his sovereign plan even before Jeremiah was born. I knew you and I appointed you. Before you were born. God's foreknowledge of Jeremiah set the course for Jeremiah's life. God tells Israel through the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 3 verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So is God saying, at this time Israel, I only know about you. I don't know about any other families among the earth. I don't know of any other people groups. God didn't know about the Philistines. He didn't know about the Egyptians. He's only watching the Israelites and doesn't know anything about anyone else. Well, of course not. So what does it mean that God knows Israel? What it means is Israel is the only nation predetermined by God in his knowledge and counsel to have an intimate relationship with him. That's what it means for him to know them like that. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own. That is, I have a bond with them that is intimate. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus says these terrifying words, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He's not saying I have no idea who you are. We know that that's not true. He made them. He's numbered their days. What he's saying is I have no relationship with you. An even more specific text regarding God's foreknowledge is in Acts chapter 2. As Peter stands to preach on the day of Pentecost, he says this in verse 23 to the crowd in Jerusalem. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Was Jesus a puppet? No, of course not. He he was nothing less than the sovereign son of God. But Peter says Jesus was delivered up. Jesus was handed over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, what played out in the crucifixion of Jesus was exactly what God had planned, exactly what God had purposed. His foreknowledge was foreordaining. In his epistle then, later, Peter is writing about God's determination to send the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So does that mean the Father looked through the corridor of time, saw that the Son was going to come to earth, saw that people were going to sinfully arrest him and, and oppose him and crucify him, and he said, I better make something good out of this? Of course not. No, it means God the Father Almighty, along with the Spirit and the Son, determined ahead of time what was going to occur. That's what this word means. God's foreknowledge is his determining ahead of time what is going to occur. That brings us to a second word. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Predestined. That's the second link in this unbreakable chain. And that's a word that scares a lot of people. I'll sometimes talk to Christians and they'll say something like, that sounds like predestination. That's not good. I'll say, why don't you open your Bible with me? (laughs) Because you're going to see that word in there, which means you're supposed to like it. It scares people. But here it is in Scripture, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. It means God marks out. God appoints, God determines beforehand. Literally, in the Greek, it is to mark out the destination ahead of time. R.C. Sproul says that it almost seems unpatriotic to the American mind especially. We find ourselves immediately wanting to guard the tree of human liberty with more zeal than Patrick Henry ever dreamed of. The thought of an all-powerful God making choices for us, perhaps even against us, makes us shout, give me free will or give me death. This very word, predestination, brings visions and, <clears throat> and even accusations of fatalism. That, that we're meaningless puppets or robots. That, that God's playing some kind of sick game with humanity. And so people hate this word, but friends, it's a Bible word. 
We need to love it. We naturally feel those feelings in our humanness. But brothers and sisters, let's not be governed by our feelings. Let us not be governed by our feelings. Let us hold them captive to the word of God. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, I have chosen you and appointed you that you should go and bear good fruit, fruit that will last. You did not choose me, I chose you. Well, wait a second, because I clearly remember choosing God. Driving home from Andrea's house as a senior in high school, late one night, clear as day, I remember all alone in my car, choosing God, following God, saying, yes, God, my life is yours. You you, you might remember a moment like that too. However, on closer inspection, we discover the truth that we were only able to choose God because he had already chosen us. You've been chosen by God before time. Can you imagine that? How much glory is in that? How much hope is in that? How much peace and joy is in that? 1 Peter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. You're not just good people who made good choices. You're a chosen people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and the belief in the truth. Christian, you have been chosen by God before time began to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, that he might be preeminent among all those who have been conformed to his image. What glorious hope is found in that statement? Who could take that from you? Third then, this third link in the strong chain of our salvation is this word calling. Called. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Calling is that inward drawing of God towards salvation. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, no one can presume to just march into the throne room of God and say, all right, God, I'm here, I'm ready, now's my time, save me. That's not how it works. We can't come unless we're drawn, beckoned. Even the timing of our coming is defined and determined by God. Now, we we, we need to understand at this point that the New Testament alternates depending on the context between the open calling, the open invitation that goes out to the whole world, and an effectual calling, the calling of those who who will believe, the calling that actually produces belief. So for instance, in Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, "'Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" In other words, Jesus says, here's the invitation, come to me. And what did the people do? Some came and some didn't. Some came to him and found in him rest, freedom from their weariness and heavy burdens. And others rejected him and refused him. So was Jesus being insincere? Was Jesus just playing games? No. 
that this general invitation is necessary. This general invitation, this open invitation must go out because wrapped up in that open invitation that goes out to every set of ears in the entire world is God's effectual calling. We scatter the seed broadly and God brings some to life. So our, our, our job is not to figure out who's elect and who's not, as if we could, as if we could figure that out. We're to proclaim the gospel to all. Someone once challenged the great preacher Charles Spurgeon on this matter and said, if you believe in election, why do you just preach to everybody? Why are you constantly preaching the Bible to all who were here? And he said, well, I guess if God painted a stripe down everyone's back who was elect, I'd just walk through London lifting the back of people's shirts and preach to them. But since he hasn't, I'll preach to all. That's our call, friends. Our call is not here to sit aimlessly and think, oh, who's in and who's out? No, we proclaim this gospel. We spread this seed and, and God gives life. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing through the word of Christ. If it's true that people must hear the gospel in order to become believers... And that by the gospel, the Father draws those whom he has chosen by giving them saving faith. Paul asks in verse 14, well, how are they then to believe in him of whom they not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? That's why we must proclaim. Every one of us. This proclamation isn't, isn't, isn't for me or those who stood in this pulpit for the last couple of weeks or Brent. No, no, no. We're all called to preach this gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed then, there are two kinds of people, perhaps sitting or standing side by side in that very moment, perhaps sitting next to each other this morning. One will die in their sin spend eternity in judgment. They'd heard the same gospel call. They'd heard that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and the Lord Jesus Christ alone. They had heard, but they had not responded. However, at the same time, hearing the same call that goes out, the other one heard and responded. What they heard about sin, what they heard about guilt, what they heard about condemnation began to trouble them and grieve them and cause them to want to run to the cross of Christ and find in him refuge and salvation. The call of Jesus, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. In them produced this thing that said, I must come. I must. Well, it's God himself by his spirit who's drawing them to his son. Both heard the invitation of the gospel. Both heard the truth of God's word. But for one, it was only an open, outward calling, and they rejected it. For the other, it was an effectual, inward calling that leads irresistibly to their redemption. If you've not read The Pilgrim's Progress, I would encourage you to do so. I've said before, I highly doubt that you can go to heaven without having read The Pilgrim's Progress. But what we see in Christian, the, the pilgrim in that story, is the effectual call. I must flee. 
the city of destruction. Well, the two final words then in this golden chain of redemption, they're words we've already studied in depth in Romans, and so we're not going to take a long time on them. This fourth link in this unbroken chain is justified. Verse 30, those whom he called, he also justified. Justification, as we've seen in Romans, is that legal declaration that we are in right standing before God. We have been credited with Christ's own perfectly righteous status because of his substitutionary atonement, paying for our sin in our place on the cross. The fifth and final link then in this golden chain, glorification. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is our future fully glorified state. Uncorrupted bodies, uncorrupted minds, uncorrupted hearts. And although this is our future state, In glory, notice Paul's language. So far in this golden chain, everything we've seen is in the past tense, right? Those whom he foreknew, he he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And now we get to this final one, and it's in the past tense too. I love that. I love this. He is speaking of a future event as if it has already happened. How, how, How can he do that? Because, Christian, it's that sure. It's that rock solid. Everyone he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Everyone he predestined, he called. Everyone he called, he justified. And everyone he justified, he will so surely glorify that Paul can speak of it in the past tense. It's done. Rock solid. This this is God's perspective that we're getting here. God who is outside of time, God who knows the end from the beginning says, If I foreknew you, I have glorified you. It's a guarantee. You are already secure, Christian, in your glorification. This passage that we're looking at this morning, who is it ultimately about? It's not ultimately about us, it's God. God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified. Salvation is the work of God from start to finish. Now I can assure you, most of the evangelical church no longer believes what we have seen from Scripture today. They reject it. That's because Scripture no longer determines what many believe. We've been taught that it's okay for us to tinker just a little bit with it if it fits better into our outside philosophical understanding of how things must work. Arthur W. Pink says this, the only reason anybody would believe in election is because he finds it taught in God's word. No man or number of men ever originated this doctrine. Like the doctrine of eternal punishment, it conflicts with the dictates of the carnal mind and is repugnant to the sentiments of the unregenerate heart. In other words, men hate this doctrine. Men hate being told they're sinners. And men hate the doctrine of election. John MacArthur calls sovereign election the most pride-crushing doctrine in the Bible. It removes any of the pride of man. It elevates God and diminishes mankind on a corresponding scale. That's why men hate it. That's why men reject it. So how do I know if I'm elect? Perhaps this passage has had you wondering that. 
stressing over that? How do I know if I'm elect? Well, again, we want the Bible to answer that. The Bible says this in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So have you believed? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have believed, if you are trusting, if you have surrendered your life to him, friend, it is because of the work of God the Father by his Holy Spirit bringing you to his son, Jesus Christ. Our question then is not, am I elect? Our question is, am I trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? So Christ's call to you, his command is simply this, come. Come. Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. That family member that you've been thinking about this morning, your little inner lawyer has been worried. I think Jason is saying that God chose against him. No, that family member needs to come. They must come. You're doing no one any favors by vainly sitting around trying to figure out if God chose them or not. Call them with the gospel's call to come. And if they won't come, call them with tears again to come. Come to Christ, you who are weary and heavy laden. That is the message we have been given. That is the message we have on this world. And yes, on the other side of eternity, we can, we can see the flip side of that sign that says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And the flip side of it from, from eternity's perspective says, chosen by God from before the foundation of the world for every person who has come. But ours is not to know that. Ours is to call and to come. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And, and the, 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 if, if, if you will do that, the stunning, mind-blowing, unimaginably glorious truth for all who come and are saved is God was behind it all along. God had so set his affection on you before the foundation of the world that he would ensure that you would come because you're his. He's elected you from before the foundation of the earth. And so all glory and praise and honor belongs to him. We share none of it. We have no reason to be proud. We have no reason to be boast, boastful. We have no reason to be arrogant. We have no reason to look down our nose at anyone. It is by grace alone that we have been saved. Through faith alone that was given to us as a gift by the God who set his affections on us before the foundation of the world. Oh, friends, Paul didn't intend this text to start arguments and fights. Paul didn't intend for Romans 9 to start arguments and fights either. He said what he says here to produce in God's people joy, confident assurance, and humble, thankful worship. Let me just close here with Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Oh, friends, it's not as though Scripture's unclear about this. It's our humanness that struggles. It's our humanness that resists. And yes, we have questions and we have natural questions and we'll wrestle with some of them until we step into eternity, but we can trust God. He is wiser than we. He is more faithful than we. His morality is greater than ours. His justice is purer than ours. And really, that goofy family member that you've been praying would be saved, whose hands do you want it in, theirs or God's? Who's more trustworthy? God foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. And he will so surely glorify us that we can say he has glorified us. To God alone be all glory. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, these truths are difficult. This water is deep. Well aware. Much controversy surrounds these things, but we want to, as your people, submit ourselves to your word. You have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed your salvation to us. We ask you by your spirit, Lord, to produce in us humility that wouldn't fight, that wouldn't snipe at each other, but instead would submit humbly before you. And we pray, God, that that we would know you truly, know your truth, embrace your truth, that it might produce in us the joy and worship that you intend it to produce in us by your spirit. Lord, that is only the work of your spirit. Natural man rejects the things of God. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit, we would be further transformed in the likeness of Christ. And I pray for any who are hearing my words that do not know you. Their hearts are far from you. They have heard that, that call to come to Jesus. So far, it has just been that open call, and they have resisted over and over again. I pray by your Spirit this morning, this would become an effectual call that calls them, and they come. They turn from their sin, and they trust in your Son. I pray that you would save them in your mercy as you have saved me, as you've saved my brothers and sisters that are here. Lord, we rejoice in you and your great salvation. Pray that you'd be glorified in us and through us as you make us increasingly faithful in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.